Well, hi, everyone. It's Andy with a new session finally here on Quantum Health. Uh, I haven't posted any sessions for a while, and I wanted to get back on track here because I wanted to share with you an experience of a friend of mine that I think will be relevant to my listeners. I have as my guest today, Tanja Greer. And I've known Tanja and her family for many years now. Tanja's husband, Charlie, was admitted to the hospital with COVID last summer, and that terrible experience will provide an important perspective, I think, that's critical for everyone to know. So with that said, let's get right into it. Tanja, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So Tanja, I know that uh, you are a very well-read person and you've been keeping up with both sides of this COVID narrative. So tell me about what happened with your Mm -hmm. husband, Charlie. Well, about um, the week of September 4th, maybe the week before that, he started just not feeling very well. And I honestly thought it was a cold because there are still other things out there besides COVID. So um, my mind didn't just go straight to COVID, of course. Um, So we just thought it kind of was a cold and it just kept progressing. And I really was not aware of how bad it was because he really wasn't um, telling me how bad that he was feeling, but it was progressing. And um, so he came home on September 4th. And I could, that's when I really could tell like something's wrong. I could hear it in his breathing that something was very wrong. And, um, but again, he just, he didn't really want to do the hospital or anything. We had heard a little, we hadn't heard a whole lot yet about the hospitals, but we had heard a little and just did not want to go there. And, um, I honestly have never been around anyone with pneumonia. So I'm just going to be very transparent that I was completely ignorant of what pneumonia looked like or sounded like. Um, I had no idea that that's what was happening to him. Um, He was not really complaining of not being able to breathe. Uh, It was just, he just didn't feel well. He just, he just felt odd. He said, Um, and his nose and his head was completely stuffed up. So I really, that's why we just kind of thought it was a cold as it progressed though. Um, he started complaining about, you know, not being able to really catch his breath, but again, pneumonia never crossed my mind. I've never been around it. I've never had any experience with it. So I just really was not aware that that's what was going on on the seventh. Um, you know, I could tell like his coloring was not good. And again, I wasn't, you know, I'm just, I'm just ignorant when it comes to that kind of stuff. So I had no idea. We were believing God and just standing on it. And I will say that we probably would have stood more firm had I realized the danger we were in, but I was just treating it like, you know, this will just go away. I mean, everything else has always just gone away. So this will just go away. Um, but he came up on the seventh and he said, I think I probably need to go to prompt med. And I, when I looked at him, his lips were gray and I just Mm. said, okay. And he said, well, prompt med or the ER. And I said, okay, well, let's go. And so I just chose the ER. Um, I don't know if prompt med would have been any different. They probably would have sent us to the ER, Uh but I just had no idea what we were in store for. I was actually just I had no idea. I I was just so trusting them to do the right thing. And when we got him into the hospital, the ER, they told me that his oxygen was 65. And honestly, I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know like what was dangerous and they didn't explain it. They just said, Oh, he's 65. We got to get him back there. So they put him in a wheelchair. They were shocked. He walked in. Um, 
but he did. He walked in of his own power. And um, so they took us back to the ER and no one told me anything. No one told me what was going on. No one told me what they were going to do. They just put him on oxygen immediately. And, you know, he complained that his head was stopped up and his nose was stopped up and nobody did anything for that. And that's where they put the oxygen is in your nose. And he wasn't getting it because his head was stopped up. So, Mm. um, you know, nobody was addressing that his is, you know, he was so stopped up. So um, a nurse came in and she put him on an IV. I didn't question it at this time because I really just thought they're going to help him. You know, we're going to be here for a little while. We're going to get some oxygen. We're going to go home where everything's going to be fine. It just never, ever struck me. Um, the danger that we were in. And so we sat there in the ER, they put him on an IV. Nobody told me what they were doing. Um, The only thing a nurse said to me was, I can tell you this, he's not going home today. But nobody told me the seriousness of it. Nobody, they didn't even act like it was serious. They were joking and coming in and out. And we sat in that ER for seven hours. Wow. And finally, they took us up to a COVID room and they took us up to a COVID room because I'm not totally sure if he um, just volunteered this or if he was asked. But somehow they, you know, he mentioned that he had just tested positive for COVID. Um, He took a test on Saturday and then he tested positive on Monday, the 6th. And so he either told them or they asked him or something, but they never tested him. They just totally took his word for it. And so honestly, he, at that time, he probably had COVID for a couple of weeks, but they just, um, you know, they just slapped us right into a COVID room all of a sudden. I mean, I've been sitting in the ER with him for seven hours with the mask on and him not wearing a mask. And um, then all of a sudden he goes up to the COVID floor and now he's off limits and I can't, I can't go with him. I can only see him two hours a day. It was just the isolation is so bad. Yeah. I mean, if you just start with that, the way we're isolating people from their family members. Exactly. It's awful. It's awful because some of these people now, Charlie was fortunate that, you know, one, he had his phone and I'll get into that because praise God, he had his phone. Um, I would not have known anything was going on in those walls had he had he not had his phone because not one time did anybody reach out to me. In 20 Mm. days, nobody ever reached out to me to tell me what was going on with him. Um, So, Mm. um, you know, they took him to a COVID room. Now I can't see him. Nobody's acting like this is serious. I was not worried at all. I just thought, you know, they're going to give him what they need to give him. It's going to be fine. He was in there like a couple of days. And I got an email from one friend who sent me Dr. Artis's um, video about remdesivir. And then you had texted me about remdesivir. And quite honestly, it's, it's not that I didn't take it serious, but it scared me. And I just thought, I thought I'm not going to be able to stand in faith if I'm scared. So I did not pay much attention to it. I knew it was there, but I didn't really, I didn't watch the video. I started to watch it and it scared me. And so I stopped watching it. And then I just prayed and just, you know, truly just trusted God to take care of him. And then he was in there Tuesday, ER all day, Wednesday, Thursday, sitting in the room, sitting on oxygen and all the meds they were giving him, um, remdesivir being one of them. 
<clears throat> and, you know, I went in on Thursday and when I got there, I just said like, what, what's the prognosis? What are we doing? What are we doing to help you? Like, cause he's just sitting the same way for three days, he's just sitting there and he just shrugged his shoulders and said, I, I don't know. And, you know, doctors come in, um, in the morning they run the floor in the morning and they talk to all these patients who have nobody in there to advocate for them. There's nobody in there that can try to weed through all the medical jargon that they're spewing out. Mm -hmm. um, there's nobody there to help him. And my husband's sitting there at 70% oxygen in a brain fog and they're explaining all this to him. So by <laughs> the time I get there, he doesn't know what they've said. Exactly. He doesn't you know, and I talked to nurses and I will say we had some really good nurses. We had a couple of real stinkers, but <laughs> we had some really good nurses that really talked to me. Once I learned to ask questions, I had some really good nurses talk to me. But, you know, at the beginning, I really didn't know to ask the nurses. I just was like, well, I guess they're fixing him. So nobody's nobody's acting like this is all that bad. So I guess we're okay. I mean, nobody gave me any kind of a sense that we were in danger at all. Hmm. I had no idea. Wow. So, um, and you know, we were just kind of walking this out quietly. We didn't put it on Facebook or anything. We just were just cause Charlie had asked me not to. So we were just kind of walking through this quietly and, um, Friday he, before visiting hours, he texted me and said, they want to take me to ICU. And I was like, why are we going to ICU? And he said, well, they want uh, my blood pressures up and they want to monitor it better. And that's what, that's all they told me. That's all I knew. Cause that's what he said. Now, did they tell him something different? I don't know because he couldn't remember, right. you know, but nobody was telling me what was going on. So I was like, okay, well, no visitors. And he said, no, not in ICU. And again, thank God he had his phone because he was keeping me updated. And I was saying like, you know, well, ask this and ask that. And he was trying, but, you know, he wasn't getting a lot of answers either. So I still didn't, I just thought, well, they're just going to monitor his heart rate. And it just, I just didn't have any fear of it. I mean, I had, I guess I had a little in the back of my head, but I was fighting it mm -hmm. and I wasn't, I wasn't going to let myself give into that because I know not to be afraid. So I was not going to give into that, but, um, Saturday morning, I call this is September 11th, of course. <laughs> and so Saturday morning, I called the hospital and, um, well, that's not exactly true. Let me go back just a little bit. So Friday night I go to bed and I'm fine. I give it to the Lord and I go to sleep and Saturday at three 18 in the morning, I shot up, um, with such a terror like I have never experienced before. I knew something is wrong. Mm. And I honestly, I was, it was such a terror that it was so tangible that I was shaking and like shivering. Like I was cold. Yeah, I just started praying. I honestly just started praying and I was praying in the spirit and I was just praying and just trusting God and just declaring that, you know, his word is true. And I got dressed and I was leaving my driveway at 328. So in 10 minutes, I was up and out of here. And I just thought on the way, I thought if his lights off, then I know we're okay. Like, cause they're not working on him. Everything's fine. If his lights off. So I pulled up to the hospital 
And this very kind security guard let me park there for a while. He came to check on me to make sure I wasn't doing anything wrong. But I just said, I just need to be here. My husband's in there. I need to pray. I just need to be here. And his light was off when I got there. So that brought me a little peace. But I really battled um, for the next couple of hours, really just kind of warring in the spirit over him. And it came to a point at... um, I know this because I always check times because I like to remember this stuff. But at um, 534 in the morning, I knew like, okay, this is done. I'm, you know, I had such a peace come over me that he's going to be fine. And um, so I called the nurse that was Saturday morning, five in Saturday morning. I called the nurse. Um, I don't know what time that was, but I called her. I talked to an ICU nurse. And she told me he was fine. She said his, his breathing's good. Uh, we're, his heart rate's really good. Um, his blood pressure is doing much better. I mean, she was so upbeat and everything's fine that I was just like, yeah, God, we did it. Like, you know, he's going to be good. Like we did it. And not 45 minutes later, he texted me and said, they want to put me on a vent. Mm. And I said, and I was still in the parking lot. Like I spent so much time in that parking lot, but I was still there and praise God, I was still there. But, um, I just said, wait, why? Like, what's going on? And, um, I said, no. And and I said, don't let them do that. And, oh my gosh, I got the most ominous text. It just made my heart sink. And he just said, they're coming. (laughs) And I just said, stop them. Don't let them do this. And I went into the hospital and I told them at the desk, like, I need my husband's up there. They want to put him on a vent. I don't understand what's going on. They just told me he was fine. And, you know, I made such a ruckus that they, the doctor from the ICU called me and tried to explain it to me over the phone. And I just would not, I was saying, no, we're not doing this. No, I didn't completely understand the danger of event, but I knew that they were dangerous. I knew this is not good. And I had no peace at all. I had zero peace about this. And um, so they sent a nurse for me and they actually let me come upstairs and I'm like, just going, no, we're not doing this. And if you've ever been in Columbus Regional, their, their ICU, all the, it may, it may be this way in all ICUs, but you know, the whole wall is glass. So I could see him and his door was open. And I said, I just kind of leaned into the room and I said, do you want this vent or do you want to go home? And he said, I want to go home. So I said, give me whatever papers I need to sign. We're going home. We're not saying, we're not doing this. We're not doing this vent. Well, then they go into fear overdrive. Yeah. So now, that's what they do. I'm being, yes, now I'm being shown the scan with with all the COVID in air quotes pneumonia. Um, I've learned since there's no such thing as COVID pneumonia. It's pneumonia. It's just right. pneumonia. That's all it is. So, but now they're showing me all these horrific scans that I don't understand. I'm not medical. I don't understand, but they're, you know, they're flapping it in front of me really fast and telling me how he's got to get on this. Now he could crash at any minute. He could die. We got to do this now. So he doesn't die. I mean, it's just, it was bombardment and my bosses are very good Christian people. And I had them on the phone with me and they were walking me through this going, ask for this, ask that. So my boss said, ask him for ivermectin. And so I did, I said, why can't you just give him ivermectin? And the doctor said, Oh no, no, no. We follow science. And there's no, it's not proven at all that ivermectin does anything. No, no, we don't give that, you know, now we need to get him on this event right now, right now we need to do this. 
Well, frankly, I didn't know what to do. And my mind was swimming. I knew I had no peace. And I also knew, and I asked them, I said, well, can I just, can I just have like 10, 15 minutes so I can figure out what to do? Cause I cannot make a decision in this atmosphere. Right. You know? and, let, and let me interject, let me interject right there too, because when, when they're bombarding you with all this, this fear, what that does is that shuts down the higher critical thinking and causes you to, um, to default into fear mode, survival mode, and you can't think critically when you're in that mode. So for these doctors and, and, and nurses to bombard you with that kind of information that you can't process, especially when they're doing it in a way that promotes that fear, that's why nine times out of 10, people fold like a $2 suitcase and say, okay, whatever you say. Right. But, so anyway, go ahead. Right. That's exactly true. And that's, that was totally my experience was it was just a bombardment of he's going to die now if we don't do this right now. So I asked them for some time and they, they said I could have a little time, but then they didn't give it to me. They would not leave me alone. They were like, well, okay, but we need to decide this quickly. So I kind of walk away and I'm just praying and I have my friends on the phone and and he's just like saying, you know, I don't feel right about this, Tanja. I don't feel right. And I just said, well, I don't have peace either, but I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to do at this moment because, you know, I don't want him to die. But at the same time, I'm not comfortable with this vent. I, I don't understand how we went from, yeah, he's great to all of a sudden now this sudden necessity to put him on this machine. I just, I did not understand it. And um, so really, they did not leave me alone, but they did let me go in and talk to him. And he told me, he said, the doctor said, well, because I was just saying, no, we're taking him home. I'm not doing this. And I kept saying that. Just give me whatever I need to sign. We're taking him home. And of course, you know, they don't address that. They just keep addressing other things. They don't say, no, you don't need to take him home. You know, no, let's try. You know, they didn't do anything other than just keep pressuring me that he needed the vent. Mm -hmm. And um so then the doctor said, well, I'll try one more thing. And then if this doesn't work, we need to go to the vent. And um, what they did then was they took him off the push oxygen and they put a, just like, I don't know what it's called. You may know, but it's just the mask where it's over the nose and mouth. Yeah, the CPAP. Um, which, yes, that is exactly what it is. And so, which in my opinion now, I could be completely wrong, but in my opinion, it's not near as powerful as the push oxygen. Right. Um, but they did put him on that. And um, just in my opinion, just to patronize me and to give in just a little so that they could look like they were trying to comply with me. Right. Um, but I really believe, and I don't have any proof to this, but I firmly believe they knew that would not work. And they knew how pitiful he would look because they knew it wasn't as powerful. And it was just a, it was just a way to get me to get him on the vent. Now, well, and, and on that note, and, and I want you to continue here in a second, but I uh -huh. want to interject this. I was listening to one of the doctors that belongs to the group, uh, America's Frontline Doctors. And this video that he was presenting uh, showed the nine different financial incentives that, that mm -hmm. hospitals receive with these COVID patients. So um, if a patient comes in and gets diagnosed with COVID, they get a financial benefit from that. If the patient is put on a vent, they get paid for that. Uh, if uh, the patient gets put on remdesivir, they get a, a financial incentive and a, and a benefit for that. So there, in total, there's nine different ones. I can't remember all of them at the moment, uh, but 
Uh, oh, and another one is if the patient ends up dying from COVID uh, with COVID sure. on their death, death certificate, they get paid for that too. <laughs> so there's nine different ones. So this is part of the reason why there's such a push to do these protocols that have not really been shown to work and to manipulate people and, and to scare them into doing what they say. Um, and I've never seen anything like it. It's unprecedented because in the the few medical situations that I've been in, not that I've been in that many, but in the few that I've been in, doctors in the past have been very willing to talk and very willing to discuss options and what have you. You know, I know this was an emergency situation apparently, but still, nevertheless, ignoring the obvious research on the benefits of, of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, mm-hmm. and then ignoring the, the, the research on remdesivir suggesting that it's bad uh, is just not medically responsible. But anyway, I'm going to get more to that in a moment. I want you to continue with your, your experience there. Okay. So, um, that's exactly right. It, it, it is such a fear based atmosphere, um, that it, it really, they're just pushing with so much fear because they want you to comply. And at the time that they're pushing for this, I did not know that they were going to get money for this ventilator. I didn't know that they were getting money because they put him in a COVID room. You know, I didn't know any of that at this time. And so they actually uh, let me go in. Finally, they let me go in and see him and they, uh, they had the door open and um, they would not let me in the room with him by myself. You know, I sat in the ER for seven hours with a mask, but now, now that, you know, he's in ICU, I have to put on this whole Ghostbusters outfit to go in and see him. And (laughs) But anyways, I went in there to him and he looked pitiful. You know, now he has that CPAP machine on his lips are dry and cracked from where he's been trying to breathe in his mouth so much because his head is so clogged. Um, At this time, I don't know how much weight he had lost. It ended up that he lost 35 pounds in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, At this moment, I don't know how much he lost at this time, but he was sickly looking. He looked awful. And, um, you know, I just, he looked scared. I just remember standing in there with him and he looked so frightened and just so pitiful. And I just said, you are going to live, you know, I am not going to let you die. And I said, I don't know what to do, Charlie. I don't know. I don't have peace about this machine, but they're saying you need it. And let me back up for just a minute, because at one point, when I was, um, when I was talking outside, the doctor himself leaned into Charlie's room. The door was still open almost the entire time his door was open. And that's going to be a point here in a second, but just, you know, for an hour, hour and a half, his door is open the entire time. And so, um, this doctor leans into his room and yells at him and says, do you want this vent or do you want to die? Oh and my word. At that moment, I, I came unglued and I want to say that they probably thought I was out of control, but I was in complete control. But at this moment, I realized I'm not just fighting you. I am fighting evil. And I mm. yelled at that doctor and I said, you don't ever speak those words to him again. He is not going to die. He is going to live. And I screamed down that hallway 
that no one is to say those words to him again. I don't ever want to hear that come out again. But I knew like, I'm not fighting you. I'm fighting what's behind this. So I just knew like I had to make that clear. And I know they thought I lost my ever loving mind. And at (laughs) one point, honestly, I turned around and security was there and they had called security at one point. And I just remember thinking I need to just, I can't get thrown out. I need to be here for him. So I need to just keep it calm. Even though, even when I was yelling at them, I was in control. I knew exactly what I was doing, but I know in their minds, I was just a wife in denial and, you know, whatever, but I knew what I was doing and I knew the battle I was fighting. And I, you know, I was not going to let them speak that over him. And so I just looked at him and I went, you are going to live. You are not going to die. Do you hear me? You're going to live. And so at that point, um, this is before they actually let me go in at that point, a nurse, she's in there with him and she goes to shut the door on me when I'm telling him he's going to live. And I stuck my foot in the door and I said, don't you close this door on me. That is my husband. And I have every right to speak to him. <laughs> that's at right. This point, I don't, I don't know. I have every right. I'm just saying that's my husband and I'm going to talk to him. And she's, you know, she's like trying to shut the door and my foot's in the way and she's in my face. And she said, I'm trying to protect all these people. You're just letting COVID germs go everywhere. And I'm thinking this door has been open for an hour. And now <laughs> right. all of a sudden it's got and he's to be on closed. A, and he's on a COVID floor, right? He, yes. He's in the ICU. <laughs> everybody's got, you know, everybody's practical. It's just ridiculous. Right. And I, you know, honestly, I think that, you know, her thought was they need to get me away from him because yeah. I'm being a bad influence. Right. You know, he's being a good little patient. And now the wife is in there and she's causing issues. So she does end up shutting the door and then she goes to him and she positions herself in front of him so that I can't see him and he can't see me. And she leans over on the bed and she starts talking to him. I have no idea what she's saying, but the next thing I know they're letting me go in and see him. And that's when I say to him, like, I don't know what to do. I don't feel comfortable with this vent. I'm just not at peace with this at all. And I don't want to make this decision this quick. And so I said, what do you want to do? Well, all of a sudden he says, I want to go on the vent. And I just said, Charlie, I'm, I'm not comfortable with this. And he just said, I just need to rest. And this is when, you know, he has the CPAP on, he looks terrible. His lips are dry and crack. I mean, he just, he looked pitiful. I can't even, I've never seen him look like that. And, um, so I just told him, I said, I will submit if this is what you want. But I said, I am not at peace with this at all. And, um, he just said, I just need to rest, you know? So it just makes me wonder what she said. Cause I don't know what she said. Right. And he can vaguely remember what she said, but it just makes me wonder what she said to him to get him now, you know, cause before he wanted to go home, he was like, I want to go home. I want to go home. And now all of a sudden I'm okay with this event. So what did she say to him? I don't know, but mm-hmm. they managed to separate us. She managed to get to him and now he wants to go on the event. So I, said to him, honestly, I looked at him and I said, don't you die. If you die, I will never forgive you. I will live the rest (laughs) of my life mad at you for dying. And I'm not even kidding. I said, I'm not even kidding you. So, um, you know, I, I agreed to it and I let them put him on it, even though my heart was like this, I, this is not right, but I didn't know what else to do. Honestly, I, it was just such a moment of hurry and chaos. 
that I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know what the options were. I mean, is he going to die? I don't know. At this point, I don't realize that they're just telling me all this because of the financial incentives. I didn't know that yet. So I didn't know, is he going to die? I don't know. I mean, is it that bad? I don't know. But I just, uh, you know, they brought this little social worker up to, and you know, this kid, he, I promise you, he looked like he was like 20 and here he's trying to talk to me and calm me down. And I just was like, I don't need you. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude, but I, I don't need you. I'm not crazy. I just, you know, we speak certain ways and I'm not going to let anybody speak other than that over him. And so um, they took me into this little room and, you know, this whole time, my girls, we were supposed to have breakfast together because we thought everything was great. And I texted and said, forget breakfast, get over here and pray. So this entire episode, they're outside the hospital. They have no idea what's going on. They're just praying and believing God. And so they take me into this room and um, my friends, we all just had a moment. We just had a prayer time. And then um, my boss, Jill, texted me the video from Kate Daly's show about their ICU. Um, I think it's called Our ICU Journey or Our ICU um, I don't know something about their ICU visit or something, but, but she texted it to me and she said, you need to watch this. And I didn't watch it because like the remdesivir stuff, I was scared. And so I was doing everything I could to stand in faith. And, you know, I just want to say that, you know, it's like the, the story, I'm sure you've heard this where, you know, a flood's coming and a guy's in his house and, you know, they, they send a car and they're like, you know, come on, the flood's coming. We got to go. And he says, no, God will protect me. God will save me. And then the waters get up and a boat comes by. No, God will save me. Then he's on the roof and they send a helicopter and he's like, no, God will save me. And then he drowns and he says, God, I thought you're going to save me. And God said, I sent a car, a boat and a helicopter. Like, you know, right. and that's, that's <laughs> how I feel about all this information at the time. I didn't see it as God was sending me things that would help us. Yes. I saw it as things that were going to scare me from being able to stand in faith. Mm -hmm. So I learned a very valuable lesson that we can talk about on a different show, but I learned a very valuable lesson with that. But um, about 20 minutes later, she texted me back and right now he's on the ventilator. She texted me back and she said, did you watch it? And I told her, I'm so grateful that I was honest enough to say, I didn't watch it. I'm scared to watch it. And she said, no, she said, Tonja, watch it. It will, it will arm you. You need to watch it. So I did watch it. And my mind was in such, I was just swimming in my head that I didn't really understand it. And honestly, I have to tell you, like, this is so sad, but I didn't even know what the word protocol meant. Like, I didn't understand what that meant. And so I said, so I need to start this different protocol. Like what I need to ask them for vitamins. Like what, what do I need to do here? <laughs> and she said, watch it again with your girls and take notes. So I said, okay, we'll watch it. And so we went out to the car and we watched this video together. And then I really started paying attention and we started taking, and I still have my notes right here with me. But we really, I really started paying attention to what she was saying. And I was shocked at how much her hospital journey was exactly like mine mm. to a T exactly. And we live in different parts of the country. 
And, but it, I had, I was having the exact same experience, except they said no to the event and we were on event. And um, so I wrote all this down and after it was over, she got to a point where she said 75 to 80% of people die on a ventilator. And I just went, no, that is not happening to us. And I talked to my, my daughters are adult daughters, but I talked to them and I said, I cannot do this. We have to get him off this machine. And I just said, I have no faith for this machine. I knew in my heart, like, I don't have faith for this, but I didn't, I didn't know what to do. But now I knew like, I can believe God to get him through this. I cannot, I can't get my faith over this machine. Mm -hmm. So I just, I texted um, Jill who sent me that I texted her and I said, we're going in, like we're going in and we're getting him off this. So I basically just said, you know, um, I don't even know if I stopped at the station. I don't totally remember, but I went straight upstairs to that ICU and, you know, they ignored me. Two people were there and one of them was busy doing filing something there. And the other one was on the phone and it probably took 10 minutes before somebody, and I'm in the ICU, (laughs) like you're not supposed to be there, but nobody hurried me out. Like I stood there for 10 minutes outside his door and thankfully they had the curtain pulled so I couldn't see him, but Um, so anyway, so I stood there for a while. Finally, someone, you know, a nurse said, can I help you? And I said, I want my husband off that machine and I want him given, you know, high, high dose vitamin C intravenously. Um, she suggested high dose zinc, vitamin D triple NAC, which truthfully, I don't know what that is. We never got to that point and I did not use that. So yeah, cysteine for our listeners. They know, yeah, my listeners know what. Uh, NAC is or N-acetylcysteine. Yeah, okay. go ahead. Okay, so she suggested that I asked for all this and budesonide. So I asked for all that. And the nurse said, well, we'll talk to the doctor. We'll give him that. She even made a copy of my notes. And on my notes, I said, no remdesivir off the protocol. I want him off of all this. And also they suggested high flow oxygen, like the push oxygen. Um, and then, um, so she said she would give that to the doctor. I went back outside about 40 minutes or so later, they called and now we need to have a meeting, but now they want to meet with my daughters and me. So, um, they never asked about the girls before. And so I said, well, we're here. So we'll come up. So we did, but on the way in, I told the girls, I said, you need to be ready because this is going to be, um, nothing but scare tactics to get you on their side to get me to keep him on the vent. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah. So I just, I just said, you know, they're going to try to scare you by what they say so that you will convince me to keep him on this ventilator. And that's exactly what happened. Um, but we stood and we said, no, we want him off. We want him off. Well, then they said, um, okay, so, but you know, if we take him off, we can't guarantee that his lungs will work. At this point, I think he'd been on it maybe three hours and they said, well, we can't guarantee that his lungs will work and we can't guarantee that his heart won't stop. And if his heart stops, we can't do CPR um, because we, his, his ribs will be too uh, fragile. And so we can't do CPR and we wouldn't be able to reinstall the vent, whatever you call that. We wouldn't be able to put that back in. So basically we would just have to let him go. Was he unconscious at this time? Yes, they had him basically paralyzed. I can tell you what they used. I have it all here, but they had him completely paralyzed. So they put him into a medically induced coma is what they did. Yes. Yes. 
Um, and so uh, I just said, well, I said, he's going to be fine. I want him off the vent. And I said, I can believe God that he's going to be fine. I believe his heart's going to work. Uh, it's going to pump like it's supposed to. I believe his lungs will work and I believe he's going to be fine. And um, so a nurse said, you know, we've been over this three times. And then she said, well, so we're all on the same page. And she goes over it all again. And it's just, it was constant. So we're just going to let him go. We're just going to let him go. If this doesn't work, we're just going to let him go. And um, we were just like, yeah, okay, but it's going to work. Like we weren't going to pay attention to if this doesn't work. We were like, no, this is going to work. He's going to be, because now, now I have faith and now Mm. I know he's going to be fine. And so um, they agreed to take him off. Now it's very important that, you know, that they told me, and, and I agreed to the fact that they wouldn't be able to do anything because later what happened is that turned into a DNR on his chart. And nobody explained that to me. Nobody told me that we're going to put DNR on his chart. And I didn't sign anything. They, they told me, the girls remember that they told me that they were going to bring me paperwork to sign. And nobody brought me anything to sign, but they put that on his chart. Mm. So um, that kind of, that's important. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so they took him off of it. And they brought him out of it and he, you know, they let us be there while they they didn't let us see like when they took him actually took it out and everything. But as he was kind of when they set the bed up after they had taken it out, you know, he was awake immediately and he looked over the window and recognized us and gave us the goofiest kind of grin. You know, he's coming out all that medicine. So he just gave us the goofiest (laughs) grin and wave. And it was so precious to us because I just thought he's going to be fine. And now at least we know sort of what we're doing, not completely, but sort of, we have a path to take now and we'll learn as we go, but at least we have a process that we're starting to understand. So then the, the guy, the oxygen man, you know, who took him off of it, you know, he's standing back with, with his, you know, his arms crossed. And I'm telling you, we're the show of the ICU. Like I looked around <laughs> and there are like 20 people around us as they take him off this vent. And really? they're all there. Yeah, the whole the doctors and nurses, they brought like a, a student team down. So there were students there. It, it was like 20 people or so were gathered around watching him come off of this. And did you and get so, a sense why that was the case? Did they come to watch him die or did, did they not know I, what was going to happen or what? I mean, what was the reason for that? Okay, nobody told me. I had no idea why they were all there. And honestly, I was so focused on him that it didn't strike me to wonder why they were there Um, at the time. Later, I thought, why? What was that? You know, later I realized that, frankly, they came to watch him die and they expected him to die. And I did not realize that right away. You know, I asked the man who was over the oxygen, who put him back on the push oxygen and all that. Um, But I asked him, "Okay, where does his oxygen need to be? to where we're considered in good territory. And he said it has to be at 88. And so he was at like 72, I think, when they brought him off. And I said, okay, so we're shooting for 88. And he just kind of gave me this look like, you poor woman, you have no idea, you know? And so I just Mm. went, okay, we're shooting for 88. So I'm like, Lord, we need 88, you know? And so they actually, this is why I know they were not expecting him to live because all of a sudden they're being super, super kind. They brought us chairs to sit in the ICU hallway and Mm. there are no visitors in ICU period. 
And so now they've brought his chair so we can sit out of his room, but they don't realize we're believers. So, I mean, we're not just regular people here. We're believers. And we, we have made signs telling him that he was going to live and, you know, that it was God's breath in his lungs. And so we're showing him all these signs and stuff. And, and he's just in such a fog, but he's getting some of it. But, you know, I sat there, Andy, and I watched his oxygen go up point by point. It just, it just started rising. And, you know, cause they, you know, they first told me there's not a vial of vitamin C in this hospital. Isn't that something that just, that blows me away, especially since in the, in the early part of COVID, some of my listeners already know this, I think in the early part of COVID in China, they started to experiment with IV vitamin C at, Mm -hmm. it was ridiculous levels. I can't remember what it was at the moment, but it was very high levels of vitamin C Mm -hmm. in an IV form. And these people were COVID free in seven days. Yeah. So, I mean, if you pay attention to the research at all, you know, that sort of thing works. Why in the world would there not be a single vial of vitamin C in the entire hospital? It blows me away. Anyway, it continue. Does. Yeah. Well, then they searched and searched and searched and they found one vial. They told me like there's one in the entire hospital and we're giving <laughs> it to you. Well, I'm like, okay, that's great. You know, we appreciate that. And it was like, 10, I think, Kate Daly would suggest 10,000 units of vitamin C. And like you were saying, just really high, high doses. Um, So they did give him that. And I believe they gave him budesonide, um, which I came to later really, really fight for. But then I watched, I just watched his oxygen start to increase. And then later, probably a few hours later, they said, well, he no longer has the criteria where he needs the ICU. So they were going to put him back in a COVID room. Well, during this time I'm texting and I'm with my friends and they're like saying, you know, we have ivermectin. It's on the way it's being overnighted to you. And I was saying, well, how am I going to get it to him? I can't get in there. And she just said, you know what? We'll worry about that when we get to it. But right now we're just getting it to you. She said, God will make a way. We'll figure it out. So then they tell me, well, he's going back to a COVID room as soon as one's ready. And so we were celebrating. I was thinking, this is fabulous. Like, you know, one, I'm going to have access to him again. So I'm going to be able to give him things that I need to give him. And two, I'm thinking he's getting so much better. Well, what I came to realize is basically they didn't expect him to live. I've said no to the event. So there's no more money in that. Um, So now there's no point in having him down here because they could be using that vent on somebody else. And, you know, getting the money. So that's what I truly believe is why we moved him out. At the time, I didn't know. At the time, I was just celebrating that he was going to be moved out of there. So when they took him out, they let all three of us in the COVID room. That gave it away to me that they didn't expect him to live because they were so strict, you know, at the beginning of all those rules. And one visitor, it has to be the same person. You cannot go and come back. Once you leave, you're gone. I mean, the rules were so strict. And now I'm saying, well, my daughters are bringing me the signs because we wanted to put the signs in his room. And I said, but they're just going to bring him up to the elevator and they're going to go because I'm thinking, you know, it's that strict. I want them to know, like, they don't expect to come in. They're just bringing me this. And that nurse said, oh, no, no, honey, they can come in. And I knew right then it's like in the back of my head, I knew they think he's going to die. And um, the girls, when they came up and they let them in, they thought the same thing, but none of us said it to each other. Like I didn't, if they didn't realize it, I didn't want to tell them. And they were thinking the same thing. We didn't realize it. They didn't want to make us afraid, but we all three knew right then, like they don't expect him to live. Well, in the meantime, before they had brought him up, 
the girls went to our friend's house and they got some vitamins and stuff. And, um, you know, I had looked into some of the American frontline doctors, what they suggested. And so she had those vitamins uh, and we had been doing vitamins, you know, we had been doing vitamins while he, before he went in the hospital, well, but we weren't doing high potency vitamins and we weren't mm-hmm. doing near enough. Right. So we knew to do the vitamins, but we were not doing near enough to fight it. And that was a lesson learned. So basically they brought in the, they snuck in the vitamins and that night, this was Saturday night after everything, you know, that was kind of our longest day. And we were, we were getting vitamins in him that night. And, um, then, uh, you know, then I just started looking for oxygen. Cause I just thought if I can just find oxygen, I can get him home and then we can deal with this. But he was afraid to come home without oxygen, or I would have taken him out well before, but he was nervous to come home that he might not be able to breathe and something happened. So I said, if I can find oxygen, will you know, will you let me take you home? And he said, yes. So we just started looking for a doctor anywhere to help us get oxygen because it's prescribed. So I couldn't just go out and buy it. Right. And, um, so, uh, I couldn't find anybody to help us because, you know, he was in the hospital and nobody wanted to take that risk. And on Tuesday, then after the 14th, I think, um, we sat in the hospital parking lot and we just were calling. There was, a, there's a list of doctors online. I think it's like push med or something. There's a list of doctors that will help you you know, that they find doctors in your area that will step in and try to help you. But what I found was none of them would help because we're in the hospital. Nobody would take that risk because we're inside the hospital. And so we just kept getting no's all over the place. And then, um, you know, our mutual friend, Julie, she came to sit and pray with us and she starts just, you know, making phone calls and to a couple people. And I believe, I know she called you and she called a couple more. And then you had a meeting with someone who said no. And then I remember we were just praying and believing God that we would find somebody and she had to go. So she's leaving the parking lot and she's driving by me and she stopped and she said, Andy found someone that will help. And we, we probably looked ridiculous, but we were jumping and just, running across the parking lot to each other and just jumping and hugging and just thanking God. So I'm thinking we found somebody that's going to give us oxygen and we're going to get out of this hospital. And so I called the doctor and I really, I don't have permission to use their name. So I'm not going to say that, but, um, but I called this doctor and they talked to me over the phone. And what I realized in that phone call was, is that he is vish. They said he's, uh, a very sick man. And my heart just dropped because I just thought, all we need is oxygen and we'll get him out of here. But he was incredibly, um, just, he was incredibly sick and I didn't realize the extent of it, but, um, but this doctor got us the ivermectin. We, uh, had it called in in Columbus and they were filling it that night. This was on um, Tuesday evening. They were filling it. I went to get it probably around 10 o'clock at night and they had two pills. And so the, the pharmacist said, well, I don't have enough to fill it, but I'll call it into the other one. And I said, okay. And so the next day, the other uh, pharmacy called me and asked me what it was for. And I had to admit it was for COVID because I didn't know what else to say. 
and they said we're not authorized to uh, fill this for COVID. Oh my word. Yeah. We won't be filling this. And I just said, my husband could die in the hospital and you won't fill this uh, medicine that you know works. And she said, we're not authorized to fill this for COVID. My word. Yeah. world We live in what a world we live in. So I was he still on remdesivir at this point? No, let me say that I stopped remdesivir after the vent. He was on remdesivir while he was on the vent. Um, So he had it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and half of, and all Friday and half of Saturday. But then after I listened to Kate Daly, I was more, I was more confident to begin to listen to Dr. Artis about it. Yeah. And so now it didn't scare me. Now it made me mad. So and let me, so, let me interject here before you continue, yeah. because I want some of my listeners to know, I don't think all of my listeners may know this, but it should be noted that the drug remdesivir uh, was first researched in Africa with Ebola patients. And they, they had to halt that study because about half the people who took that drug died. And I also know a person who works in the insurance industry. And she said she got curious one day and started crunching some numbers with COVID deaths And sure enough, her research showed that about 54% of COVID patients who were put on remdesivir died. Now, her research isn't official, of course, but it's interesting that her numbers match the African research on the Ebola cases. So the, the bottom line is remdesivir is a dangerous drug. It shuts down the kidneys and the patients begin to hold water and eventually the lungs start to fill with water and the patient dies. And by the way, guess who owns the patent on remdesivir? Fauci. Did you know that? I did know that. Yes. <laughs> Not till later, but I didn't, I do know that now. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's good that you got that information. And for my listeners mm-hmm. that don't know Dr. Artis, I don't remember his first name. I've only listened to him once or twice. Do you remember his first name? Dr. Artis. I believe, I believe it's David. I could be wrong about okay. that. It's A-R-T-I-S, Dr. Artis. I believe that's correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, So I would encourage my listeners to go check out some of his work. He is very well informed on remdesivir and the hospital Mm -hmm. protocols and how dangerous they are and, you know, why they're, why the the hospitals have adopted these protocols. Um, So I would encourage you to check out his work, but um, okay. So you, so you fought to get him off of remdesivir. Did they give you any problems about that? No, actually they didn't. And I didn't really have to fight for that. I just said, none, I don't want him on this anymore. And what I learned later was that, you know, when they were showing me those scans of all that fluid and stuff in his lungs, that's from remdesivir. Exactly. That's not even pneumonia. It's not even pneumonia at all. It's, it's the, it's the effects of remdesivir and what it does. Correct. So, um, no, they did not fight me at all, but I will say I do have documentation that I told them to not give him any more. And they gave him the last hundred milligrams after I told them not oh my to give gosh. him any more. So I do have documentation about that, um, that I just kind of sitting on, but I do have that because the nurse said, I said, well, what is he on now? Like, what are they giving him? And she named off, uh, you know, the vitamins that I asked for and everything. And then she said remdesivir. And I said, he's not supposed to be on that at all. And she goes, Oh, they just gave him the last five milligrams. Like, it's not that big a deal. And well, when I looked, I'm, I need to recheck the paperwork, but I think they gave him a full hundred milligrams after I told them not to. Um, 
But anyways, they did not give me any fuss about getting him off the remdesivir. They didn't give me any fuss about taking him off the vent, except that, I mean, they never told me no and that it was good for him. They just, they just kept telling me that he could die, you know, if we took him off. It was a lot of fear in that too, but they did do it. So I will say, I know there are hospitals that won't take them off if you tell them to or whatever. And so I will say that they did do that when I told them to. Um, they let me spend the night with him that first night. And he had, he had a pretty rough night trying to breathe. And, you know, honestly, we just prayed him through it. And I just kept telling him, I'm like, we are going to make it through this night and you're going to live and we're going to make it through this night. And, but still, I just want to say still his head is stopped up and his nose is stopped up. Like he cannot, he cannot get air in through his face (laughs) basically. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but nobody, the only thing they did was give him a 12 hour nasal spray. That's all they did to combat that. And so, um, once we found this doctor that helped us get the ivermectin, they filled it in their town. I had to drive to get it. It's not, it, nobody in Columbus would help us. So I had to drive to get it. But I said, you're guaranteeing me that you can get this filled. And they said, yes. And I said, well, I'm on my way now. I'm coming right now. So um, they did get it filled for me. So on, um, that was Wednesday. So on Wednesday, we started ivermectin. And then I started um, supplementing what the hospital was giving him. They were giving him low doses. They gave him about, I think they started off giving him 500 vitamin C. They <laughs> gave him quite a bit of zinc, like 220 zinc. Um, and then five, uh, 5,000 vitamin D. And one thing this doctor helped me with was I gave them access to Charlie's chart and they went through everything he was on. And basically said, this is okay. This is okay. Making sure that anything that they told me to give him wouldn't interfere. So I did have doctor help with what to give him. I wasn't just doing this on my own research. Mm -hmm. Um, I did have somebody walking me through it, which was very good. So this doctor suggested like they wanted him on 30,000 vitamin D3. They wanted him on 2000 C. Um, the zinc they said was fine. And then they of course said the quercetin, like a thousand quercetin. I think we, we went up to like 2000 quercetin, if I'm not mistaken. And then I also gave him a 325 aspirin bear, uh, for blood clots. So what happened is once I started questioning, you know, Sunday, I really questioned the nurse and this is one of the nurses that was not so nice but I really started questioning because now I know I want to know what's going in him, how much is going in him, how do you spell it, what's it for? And as I as I did that to her with every single thing she's scanning, I'm like, how do you spell that? And what's it for? And how much are you giving him? Um, she was very irritated that I was <laughs> questioning. She was very irritated. And at one point she said, Are you vaccinated? And, you know, it wasn't a question for my health. It was what sort of person am I? That's what she was asking. Right. You know, what, what kind of person are you? Yep. And um, so anyways, that didn't have anything to do with anything. So then I asked for Budesonide because a friend of mine had, had given me a great website called budesonideworks.com. And I had been reading up on that. And it was all about how England is starting to use Budesonide, how it targets the lungs it's you, you and your listeners probably know this, but you know, I didn't know that, but it's just, it's a very safe antihistamine that's over the counter. 
in nasal sprays and it's prescribed for people with asthma all over this country. Mm-hmm. And so um, I began to ask for that. Well, then the nurse asked me, well, how do you spell that? And do you know its scientific name? And I'm like, no, but I know that there are lots of studies that it's working and I want it and I want him to have it. So she told me she would get with the doctor. Well, see, here's the thing is they never let me talk to the doctor. She called him for me. And then she came back and told me that he said, no, what he was on was fine. So what they had him on was dexamethasone and dexamethasone goes all through the body. And that's what they tell you. At least that's what they told me is that how potent this is. This is much better for him. It, tar- it just goes through every tissue of the body. And, and so I said, um, well, I wanted something that will target his lungs. Cause now I've learned now I know the questions to ask. I know what I'm looking for. And I said, I want something that will target his lungs. I don't know why we need to target tissues in his big toe when his lungs <laughs> are the issue, right? Like what's going on here. And so he told me, and I actually, that's not, I did talk to the doctor on Sunday because I was there when he came in. And that's when I asked for you that's night. He told me, no, what he's on is fine, blah, 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 blah. So then I did more research. Well, then I asked for the nurse to ask for it again. And she came back and said, no, he said no. And so Tuesday, I called the hospital and I asked for it Sunday and Monday. And then Tuesday, I asked again for it and I was told no. And so this time I called the hospital and I got a sweet little nurse and I just said, I want to speak to the doctor myself. I want him to call me back. You know, I want to talk to him. So when he called me, he, his first words out of his mouth were, Mrs. Greer, I'm going to tell you one more time why I'm not going to prescribe you and why I'm not going to change my mind. And then he went all into this thing. And honestly, I kept my cool, but I was firm. And I said, I told him three or four times, I want my husband on budesonide nebulizer. I want it started today. I want one milligram two times a day because this will target his lungs. And he keeps telling me no. And I just keep going. I want my husband on budesonide nebulizer today. I want one milligram two times a day because that's what, you know, they were prescribing and showing to have some good effect. He kept telling me he wasn't going to do it and that he wasn't going to take him off dexamethasone um, to do this. And if I wanted him off dexamethasone, I could just take him to another hospital. He was not going to do that. And so I just said, well, because he said, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to take him off of one and give him the other. Well, initially he had told me that doing both would be like basically overkill. So he's choosing this one. And I said, I'm not asking you to take him off dexamethasone. I'm saying, give him budesonide. You're the one who told me that you wouldn't do both. I'm not asking you to switch. I'm saying, if you need to do both, do both. But I want him on budesonide. Well, again, he says no. And finally, I just said, look, I said, I know that there is a law called the right to try. And you as a doctor have every right to try this completely safe alternative to target his lungs and see if it works. And I said, me as his wife and advocate, I have every right to request it and demand it. And I expect you to do it. And I said, if you do not do it today, I'm prepared to go the next step. And he, he exploded. He, I wish I'd had it. I wish I'd have recorded it because he was so mad. He started screaming and yelling at me that he was the, he was the far most 
authority on COVID in Bartholomew County and, you know, how dare I blah, 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 blah. And because I said, listen, I said, I kept my mouth shut for four days and I trusted you. I did not ask questions and you almost killed my husband. And mm-hmm. I said, I'm not doing it your way anymore. You are doing it my way. And I said, if you do not do this, then I am prepared to go the next step. And I never said the word ethics, but he knew that's what I meant because I was prepared. I was nervous to do it, but I was prepared. Like I will do whatever it takes because I know you have the right to do this. Well, they started budesonide that day. (laughs) And uh, yeah. And so I can honestly tell you that this is the absolute truth is that he took two treatments and the next day he started coughing gunk up. Now it wasn't big. It wasn't major changes, but we started seeing progress the next day. Amazing. Yeah. He just started getting better. And then later that week, then I get a phone call that now um, nobody's addressing, like taking his oxygen down. So I told him, I said, you know, it would help if you started asking, maybe they can lower this oxygen because he's on push oxygen, a hundred, I don't know if it's like a hundred, a hundred or whatever, but he's on the highest they can give him on push oxygen. And so I said, maybe you start asking them if they'll bring it down like a not five notches. Cause that's kind of what they had tried to do in the past. And I just said, start asking to take it down and see if we can start weaning you off of this. So he did. And they did start pulling it down. They got him down to 75 and we were celebrating. And I know like he has to get to 10 or four or whatever, but I'm celebrating 75. And, um, so then one night somebody came in and they went from 75 to 50 in one step. And I think 75 to 50 or 75 to 55, but anyways, they dropped him really low in one step and he struggled so bad that they put him back at a hundred and they left him at a hundred for two more days. Oh my gosh. And then, yeah. So then I was like, why are we not trying to come down again? Why do they put him back to a hundred? Why not just put him back to 75? Why not put him at 80? <laughs> right. Like put him at something he is already comfortable on, but they didn't, they shot him back up to a hundred. So he spends two, three more days on a hundred. And then the hospital calls me that we need to now look at a long-term care facility um, to help, you know, wean him off of this machine. And I was just like, you, I didn't even know this was an option. Like, I didn't even know that this could happen. Like I'm celebrating thinking, you know, we're going to get him off this machine. We're going to get him home. And now you're telling me he possibly needs another facility, like a step below nursing home. Like Mm -hmm. what? I was just like this, what? (laughs) (laughs) So I, I put them off. They called me on a Thursday and I just said, well, I need to pray about this. And so I put them off because honestly, Since Tuesday, um, since Wednesday, the day before I just started sneaking in ivermectin and that's, you know, I was sneaking in the ivermectin and I was sneaking in all the the extra vitamins to supplement up to what this doctor had told me that they wanted to see him at. Mm-hmm. So I didn't fight the hospital anymore because I didn't want to take a chance on getting kicked out. And I just thought, you know, you and other very good friends got me the vitamins we needed. So I'll just sneak them in and I'll just do it myself rather than cause a big issue and end up possibly getting kicked out, not allowed to see him. So I just kind of started playing by their rules, basically. And, you know, I would come in and just they didn't check on us at all. Like nobody ever hardly came in the room except for one time to give him the meds for the night. But, you know, I would come in and I gave him the ivermectin. I gave him all the vitamin C. I gave him the, the extra vitamin D. 
I gave him everything she told me to give him and he took it every single day. And we just started seeing him improve and improve. And, um, you know, so when they called me to go to a different facility, I just thought we've only been doing the ivermectin for a couple of days. So if I can just put them off through the weekend, I might, you know, we can see more and more progress and I don't think he's going to need this. And so, you know, they finally cornered me like Tuesday the next week and said, we got to pick a facility. He can't stay here anymore. We've basically, we've done all we can. They've basically, you know, squeezed all the COVID money out of us that they can get. So now (laughs) it's time to move on. That's really the bottom line. And so anyways, I finally said, you know, will you do what you need to do? But I believe we're not going to need this, but you go ahead. Cause they told me it could take like 10 days to find him a bed or whatever. So I just thought, you do what you need to do, but we're not going to need this because God had shown me that he was going to come out of Columbus regional. And now I'm like, he's coming out of this hospital. We're not going anywhere else. And, um, so a couple of days later, you know, they started talking about sending him home, but you know, that night, I just, what I wanted to say too, is that night that he struggled really bad. That first night out of the ICU, he struggled and it was a real struggle and just to get him to breathe. And I just kept trying to calm him down and just saying, just, you know, just because part of it was the panic of not being able to breathe that coupled with not being able to breathe, you know, you put all that together. And I was just trying to calm him down and say, you know, you're going to be fine. Just, just try to relax, just breathe, just slowly breathe in, relax, you know, and he was really struggling. Well, what I realized um, about two weeks later, a nurse came in and said, do you know your DNR? Well, he had no idea. And I just realized if anything had happened that night, they wouldn't have done anything. I hadn't signed anything. Nobody brought me paperwork, but they would not have lifted a finger to help him had he needed it because they put DNR on his chart. During that ICU thing, it's, it's completely amazing. And that's when we realized like, oh my gosh, he's been DNR this entire time. And we didn't even know for two weeks, he's been DNR and we had no idea. Well, had you not advocated for him the way that you did and uh, raised the kind of fuss that you did and, and been as bulldog determined as you were, it's pretty clear to me from hearing the story, he would be dead right now. I truly believe that. I truly believe that. Had, had you continued with those hospital protocols, because he started going downhill very quickly after mm-hmm. the, the vents and the remdesivir, am I right? Yes, definitely. I think being on remdesivir all those days, that led to the ventilator. And they try to tell you it's pneumonia and it's not. It's the fluid that that happened, you know, that the remdesivir causes. Right. And so um, I just became a staunch advocate for people who just the ride up the elevator, I would say, how long have you been here? Oh, we just got here last night. And I would say, get them off from Desivere. Do not, you do your research yourself. But I was telling everybody in the elevator, I was telling everybody that I walked in with, like, don't let them give them remdesivir. And, you know, some people are just so like, uh, you know, it is what it is. And I'm just thinking, this is your loved one. Right. Like, well, you know, on that note, Yeah. On that note, by the way, we have some other acquaintances that this same thing happened to. And it was, again, the husband. And we don't know these people as well as we know you and Charlie. So we didn't really have the influence with them. So we kind of went through another party that knows them better to explain to them what we helped you with. You know, try to keep them off of mm-hmm. it, try to keep them off from Desivere, do these specific supplements. And the wife was just not comfortable with any of that. She allowed the hospital to do whatever they wanted to do, and her husband died. 
Yeah. And that was in the same, that was in the same hospital that you were in. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have a very dear uncle that very same thing happened to. And of of course uh, he, he and his wife lived in Florida at the time. Uh, She still does, but my, my uncle passed away. He went into the hospital and uh, they did everything the hospital wanted to. And I didn't really have any influence there, although I tried, but um, he ended up dying from, from that. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there are people that are not privy to this information that their loved ones are dying. And Mm -hmm. that's why I wanted to do this podcast today, because I wanted to get the word out there about how dangerous these hospital protocols are. And these hospitals are incentivized to do certain things because they get paid to do them. And this, the, Mm -hmm. the director of the CDC admitted that by the way, I mean, that's on record that, that he believes that hospitals are incentivized to do this because they're because of the the financial benefits that they get, they get paid when somebody comes in with COVID. If they've been diagnosed with COVID, even if it's them that diagnosed them, um, they get paid. They get paid for all these different things, nine different incentives. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, they they really fight you hard to have those protocols performed on your loved ones. So it's good that you got the information that you got when you got it, because had you not received that information, your husband might not be here today. That's absolutely true. And, you know, our bill shows that every, every time they gave remdesivir, it's just shy of $1,500 every time they give it. That's what they charged. You know, that's what they charged our insurance company. And so that's for every person, every time you get a hundred milligrams of remdesivir, it's 15, just shy of $1,500. That part I didn't know. So $1,500 a pop for a hundred milligrams of remdesivir. Wow. Yeah. And most people are on it seven days. Most people are on a remdesivir protocol for seven days. And, you know, about five days is when it starts. I've heard, I've read about five days is when it really starts affecting your kidneys. And, you know, when Charlie got home, he did have, um, his left leg was really heavy. Uh, he couldn't flex his foot like he could his right leg. And it was kind of heavy. And I was listening to Dr. Artis um, on a, a podcast. And he was saying that um, heavy extremities and tiredness, like he was very, Charlie was very lethargic when we got home. He said, all that is remdesivir poisoning. And just to take, which you probably know what this is, just take um, some AC carbamide. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's for kidney health. And he said, take that in a few months, you'll be fine. So I got Charlie some of that and, um, he's completely fine. You know, um, he's all hundred percent. I would say hundred percent better now, or if not hundred percent, we're, we're very, very close to it. Very, very close to it. So that really helped with that. So, well, that's, well, um, thank God that he's fine today and that uh, you you were privy to the information that you were privy to. That was an answer to your prayers. Um, Knowledge Mm -hmm. is power. Uh, Knowledge properly applied is power. I always like to say. Um, So you had to, you had to stand your ground and uh, be a bulldog there for a while in order to get that done. But uh, thank God that you did it. So uh, that's, that's an amazing story. So, well, Tanja, thanks for um, all that detail. Um, I know that was a very harrowing experience that you went through, but uh, I think it's going to serve a greater good in helping people to understand what to do and what not to do uh, when their loved ones get sick. And if, if, if they do have to go to the hospital and hopefully we can help yeah. people not have to resort to that. But if they do go to the hospital and need oxygen or whatever, then uh, there are certain things that, you know, 
to advocate for and against. So that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast today. So I really appreciate your time. Is there any other details that you want to close out with? Um, any, anything else that you want to say? You know, basically, I think I would just make sure that you know that you have every right to be involved. And when they start shutting doors and not reaching out to you. If Charlie hadn't had his phone, I would not have known we were going to ICU. I wouldn't have known they were going to put him on a vent. They went to get it. He Mm. texted me to tell me like nobody told me what was going on. I wouldn't have known anything if he hadn't had his phone the entire time. And, you know, he didn't feel like using it, but he did. So thank God that he did because I wouldn't have known anything, but you have every right to be involved. You have every right to advocate and I would just say, you cannot be shy about it. This is, I wanted them to know, we took in pictures too of him and put them in the room because I wanted them to know you're dealing with a human. You're not dealing with number 4,728, whatever. You're dealing with a person who has family that loves him, who has friends, who has a life. You know, you're not just dealing with this number. And so I just think you just cannot be worried if you're going to make a fuss or not. Like, Somebody needs to fight. And if not you, who? Right. We've had the same issue where I've dealt with four different cases in the last few weeks. And two of the cases, we just highly recommended, don't let them give them Desivere. They needed oxygen. And they did. They both went in. They got oxygen. They refused room Desivere. And both of them are out. The other two cases totally trusted the hospital. One, One person I said, you know, her husband was in ICU. And I said, the first thing I would do was get him out of ICU because he wasn't on a ventilator yet. And he was coherent. And I said, the first thing I would do is get him out of ICU so I could have access to him and get him these vitamins. And she said, well, I just feel like at least there he's getting watched better. And, you know, he's getting monitored more closely and he died. You know, both cases where they didn't, they stayed on remdesivir and they trusted the hospital. Both of those cases died. Uh, so you, sad. Just, you can't just go in and trust. You have to ask questions and it's okay to ask questions and it it's okay, okay to not move at their pace. You know, it's okay to not move at their pace and take things at your own pace and make them listen to you. That's it's right. Okay. And it's okay to make demands. I mean, the doctors are there Absolutely. to serve you, not the other way around. That's, that's yeah. the thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is that we've been conditioned to revere doctors as gods or something, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and we're not allowed to ask any questions. But doctors are there to serve the patient, not right. the other way around. Right. And I told the doctor that when I was on the phone with him, I said, you work for me. <laughs> and so you need to do what I'm asking you to do. So Because you also have people should know, like you have the right, if your doctor won't listen, you have every right to fire them and find another doctor in the hospital until you find one that will listen to you. Exactly. You just keep going until you find one that'll listen. I mean, if that's what you have to do. First and foremost, I would personally, I'm not a doctor, but I would first and foremost say at all costs, try and stay out of the hospital. Yep. You know, absolutely. But if you go, definitely demand vitamins and stay off of remdesivir because it is a killer. And that's what people are dying from. 
Well, and the thought that I had when you were saying that is that so many of these hospitals are so dictatorial in the way that they do things and try to separate uh, loved ones from mm-hmm. the person that's that's in there for care uh, that you don't even know what's going on. You can't even advocate for these individuals a lot of the time because you don't have access to them or the doctors. So if you can stay out of the hospital, that would be the the best scenario. And that would be a discussion for another day as to how to stay out of the hospital. We've kind of run over time today. So I want to wrap it up here in a minute, but. Hey, I want to tell you too, like you could just add this, but there is a law in Indiana that prohibits hospitals and care facilities from um, denying patient visitors. Oh, I didn't know that. I found it on, it's um, an attorney website. I think it's called Hall and Render, but if you just Google Indiana law forbidding, it's like from April 21, but basically there's criteria that has to be met. But if your patient is in, um, you know, even if they're just upset, Cause there were times I told Charlie, I said, if you need to see me, you just act all upset and they have to let me in. Mm, so, okay. you know, you could look that up. Cause that's very, they, Indiana does have a law now that they cannot, they cannot totally isolate someone. Okay. That's really good so, to know. I did not yeah. know that. So that's really helpful yeah. information. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Um, you know, the, my listeners on the podcast, you know that um, I have other episodes where we talk about some some natural remedies and some natural support for the immune system. Uh, I have uh, three segments prior to this one with Dr. Daniel Stock and his lecture that's broken up into three parts. And uh, he has some recommendations there that you can listen to as well. You know, I'm not a medical doctor, so that's why I want to have people in like Dr. Stock who have experience in this regard. I I think he's one of the, the best experts in Indiana where COVID is concerned. He's doing a great job and he's very, very well informed. So you, if you haven't listened to those episodes prior to this one with Dr. Stock, please give that a listen because that may provide the information to keep you you and your loved ones out of the hospital in the first place. Well, that's all the time we've got. So I want to wrap this up. I want to thank you, Tanja, for the time that you took to talk to me today and um, all the best to you and Charlie and your family. Thanks again, Tanja. And thanks again, everyone for listening. If you have any questions, you know where to find me. God bless you all. Take care.